just to come off the edge um, and, and really just set the edge well. Um, that's what they asked me, so that's what I feel like I do. Well. I take a Bud Light break. I just came down from the high of my life. I just, I just came down from the high of my life. See us popping champagne, we could do it all night. And if everything gon' bad, we gon' make it alright. How you expecting the mores when you ain't putting wood? And I just got up the phone, yeah, with my realtor. And I've been eating so good. What is up, everyone? I am here with uh, one of my probably favorite people within the Browns Twitter universe. It is at Lake Effect Bro. His name is Luke. He's currently in Columbus, and he was kind enough to, to join me on this episode of the, the Set the Edge podcast. Luke, what is going on? I know you're probably on a little bit of a high after watching your boy Deshaun um, play pretty damn well last night in probably one of the more exciting national championship games that that I can remember, although I guess last year's was kind of along those lines. But um, I'm sure you you thoroughly enjoyed watching that game. Yeah, thanks for having me on, uh, first and foremost. Uh, I think it was about as much of a storybook ending as you could have like written up, especially even the way the first quarter went. Um, they were down. They were turning the ball over. And uh, I know everyone's like, keep Skip Bayless off my timeline. But, you know, he was <laughs> he was hammering him and he was ready to, you know, put him underground by 14, nothing. And then somehow, some way, Dabo was just being super conservative at the beginning. And I think that first big hit that Deshaun took where he had that shovel pass on that triple option, he got smacked in the head and everything just kind of looked a little off, a little bit weird. And then they finally let him get into rhythm, start taking some shots down the field. Um, Williams, Mike Williams, the big receiver, got hurt early in the game too, and that kind of threw everything off. And I think it was kind of cool how he really settled everyone down and he just started going to work. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the intangible stuff that people talk about is so hard to quantify sometimes, like talking about, oh, he's tough or, oh, you know, he, he's got, he, he, he never wavers, he's unflappable, but like watching Deshaun last night, he really, I mean, down 14 nothing to an Alabama team with that type of defense is something that I feel would freak out a lot of people, and he, you never really saw his body language go down I mean he he had a couple where some guys were dropping balls or maybe he put his hands in the air he kind of put his head down but he was so calm um and then they got right back into it at 14-7 and I think just like starting there with him and I think that's been a, a huge positive of what people have talked about with him is how quickly he bounces back from whether it's an interception or whether it's just you know their defense giving up a huge play on a blown coverage or whatever it may be is he just kind of bounces back like it's nothing like he puts that completely out of his mind which I think is hugely important especially for a guy who's most likely going to be one of the top quarterbacks drafted and go play for a team that's probably not going to be very good at least initially yeah I think that um with intangibles and that um you know the clutch gene things like that what I can't stand a lot is when people try and project that on people that maybe don't have it, but then when you want to use it yourself, you kind of sound like one of those people. But there, it is impossible to watch last night 
and think of anything other than he's such a gamer, such a guy that's going to, you know, put his team on his back. And I know he doesn't huddle up or anything like that, but, you know, when you look at a guy out on the field or in the huddle or whatever, you know that he's going to lead you, he's going to put you in the right position, and he's going to, you know, trust you to make the plays that you're supposed to make. Um, I think that Leggett drop a little bit, I guess you wouldn't call it a drop. It was kind of he stopped running. He saw that they kind of passed him off to nobody. And I think it was in the fourth quarter. And he kind of hesitated and then stretched out for a long pass that he didn't end up getting. And then he went right back to him on that last drive. And he made that incredible full extension pass on the left sideline. I think those are the kind of things uh, that show leadership. Um, You know, a lot of those intangibles where – he's going to come back to you because he has to use you. He needs you. And, uh, man, he just made every play possible last night. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of moving forward, um, into just the tangible stuff. And in terms of what would you say, what's your favorite thing or what do you think Deshaun does the best that you think at least is going to be one of his kind of best traits to translate at, at the next level when, when you've watched him play? Because I know that you've been high on him. So what kind of gets you excited about Deshaun at the next level? Uh, it would definitely be the uh, the gunslinger mentality. I don't like a dink and dunk kind of guy. And, in fact, they don't really have a ton of that in their offense in general. Uh, he throws it deep. He takes shots. And he's not afraid to, you know, miss guys, um, throw an interception, uh, allow his guy to go up for the ball. I think, you know, just because this is what we are, we're projecting him, you know, to the Browns or whatever. They have those kind of physical and fast playmakers on the outside between Pryor, assuming he's back, and Coleman out there, where you're going to want to take three, four shots down the field at a time. And, you know, not a lot of guys have super high percentages, you know, going 20 yards down the field, but you need to do that in the type of offense that he wants. And he just puts the ball on people in a way. Uh, I think the game that really sticks out to me is he had a bad game against uh, Louisville. Overall, they ended up having like a real gutsy performance and coming out and pulling it out. But he just doesn't stop attacking. He doesn't ever let um, himself get down, let us – Guys get down. They're always going down the field and always trying to take those shots with their playmakers. I mean, I don't think their skill positions were as good as last year if they had Mike Williams. Uh, There's a couple of guys that left. Um, But Deion Kane, uh, I think that's his name, number eight, he kept going to him last night, going to him last night. And then, you know, once they got Williams back in there, just kept going deep, kept going deep. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on the defense where they can't run up on a lot of these screens. They can't stack the box. Like, I'm sure you're going to see his rookie year or his first few starts out there. He's going to make you have to stay honest. For sure. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like I've been skeptical of Deshaun just, you know, it's been, and shout out to you for putting me onto that draft breakdown site so I can uh, waste my time <laughs> watching as many hours of, of that. Never as heard of that. I mean, I, I don't know if work ever got my IP addresses for how long I've been <laughs> on the site. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I felt when you sent me that link, I was like, I don't know how in the world I've never come across this, but I'm, uh, I'm thrilled that, uh, you pointed me in that direction. But, um, 
I was so impressed by him last night because even even some of the the stuff that you don't really even notice I thought was so well done, especially some of the passes were they were short passes there. A few of them were over the middle, but he's throwing them low and he's throwing them away from the defender. And just like in the most perfect spot where, yeah, it's not going to be a catch and run, but this is we're getting five yards. We need this first down. Here's a possession throw. And he's hitting he's hitting a lot of his taller receivers who are kind of going down to get it because they're they're draped by an Alabama linebacker or cornerback or whoever, and he's just putting them in these perfect spots where, you know, people, you see people on Twitter or even on the broadcasters like, oh, well, that ball is low, but he's doing it on purpose because of the coverage, and um, I was really impressed by that stuff, and even something small where he's throwing it to Mike Williams and people are like, oh, Mike Williams went up and got that. But it's also, you know, where he's placing that ball for Mike, whether it's his back shoulder or he's just putting it that high up and in, in the place where he knows exactly where Mike can go up and get it. And the only person that's either going to catch it or it's going to be an incompletion um, is to Mike. And that stuff really impressed me last night um, because he was just so good at doing even those little things aside from, you know, the big pass plays, the that seam pass that he hit down the middle that everybody was talking about. He was doing the small stuff really well, too. Yeah, and I think uh, an underrated aspect of what he does well is he – pre-snap he knows where his one-on-one matchups are he knows who is you know who the big dogs that need to eat are he knows how to get uh the ball to his playmakers um and then like you were saying on those low throws a lot of them to Renfro over the middle you really want it I mean against a defense that's as ball hawking and you know trying to score on every turnover like Alabama is you know you could lose the game just with one pick six so you want to keep those throws low. You don't want to keep them high. Uh, they've probably got three or four NFL players over there in the defensive backfield for Alabama. So, And, I mean, they got a few hands on the balls, but he was playing keep away real nice last night. Yeah, he, he most certainly was. And I guess, you know, talking about the one, obviously the, the biggest knock that people have on him is um, has, has obviously been his interceptions, and I guess that kind of flows into decision-making and reading coverages and all that. But, you know, as, as I think more about that and, you know, watching some of the games where he was fooled by a, by a coverage and thought a guy had – thought his running back had man and they're in zone and he tries to throw a wheel route and it gets intercepted or he's – like last night a couple times he just didn't see – uh, whether it was Reuben Foster or another linebacker kind of just sitting in the middle of the field and spying him or, or playing zone or whatever it may be. But I imagine, and, and I've seen it, you know, this. Ha- <laughs> I feel like, and even I have gotten caught up in sometimes thinking like, oh, you know, these guys have to be perfect on every throw. And that's obviously not any quarterback except for maybe like Aaron Rodgers. And guys are going to get fooled. And Alabama plays a lot of exotic coverages and, and are really, really good at it. And so I was, I was curious what you, what you thought about um, his major criticism, which is the, the decision-making. And sometimes it looks like he is misreading a coverage and throwing a pretty bad interception when people think maybe he should have seen it. I just curious to get your take on that. Yeah. If there's, if there's anything, there's definitely a trend with his interceptions where, you know, the underneath coverage will, be creeping back and there won't be a number two underneath and you kind of realize that he's going deep so a lot of these cover two looks um you know you'll have that sinking uh cornerback there that or that linebacker and hook to curl kind of going underneath and undercutting a lot of his uh receivers and interceptions i think that's something that's gonna have to be you know at least looked at because you know you're not going to be able to 
chances are he's not going to be thrown in the high 30s for touchdowns and high teens and interceptions and be able to get away with that type of thing in the NFL, especially where the ball skills of some of these receivers and some of these uh, DBs are you know, just as good as each other. Um, where a lot of these DBs in college you know, might have dropped a few of these interceptions, but I think that's definitely where his biggest um, – weakness lies right now uh it is pre-snap and post-snap you know you might think you have he has one-on-one or like it's man like you said and somebody just undercuts and comes underneath him uh but part part of that's his nature and i don't know that you're ever going to be able to break him from taking a lot of these shots and i think if you neutered him too much that would take away probably what he's best at which is you know tackling attacking deep down the field yeah for sure no i i couldn't agree with you more there i think that quarterbacks are going to have their flaws and yeah it's just you're going to have to take some of these guys with their flaws and and mold them and um you know deal with deal with their flaws when they come and hope you can minimize it and you know imagining Deshaun with with someone like Hugh Jackson I, I just feel like is almost the prototypical kind of specimen that he would want a guy that you know has the arm to make all the throws and and also has has the legs but you know what stands out to me about Deshaun too is that He's not a guy that leaves the pocket just to leave it. Um, you know, obviously they have a lot of design quarterback runs at Clemson for him, but in terms of when he's dropping back and, and he's looking, you know, it, it seems to me that most of the times when he's leaving the pocket, he's kind of exhausted all options instead of just a guy who's who's bailing out of the pocket for no reason, like what we saw a lot with Robert Griffin III here this past year when, you know, he's feeling phantom pressure or he's just, just leaving because he wants to leave. And I think having that those two capabilities is something that Hugh I think would have to have to love in in his next quarterback one would think yeah um I was with you there I certainly uh loved how he was in the pocket you see a lot of like one two uh reads and then you know he kind of books it out of there and I think he did a really good job of that in the national championship last year I think uh Josh Norris I don't know if you follow him uh he has definitely opened my eyes a little bit. He goes through uh, – recently he had been going through a lot of uh, Watson's pressured looks because uh, something I had to go back and look at was just how good of a pocket he typically has. And I think that's a combination of teams trying to keep him in the pocket as well as um, he's really good against the blitz. Last night I'm pretty sure he did quite well against the blitz. I can't remember the numbers specifically. Um so he has worked with some pretty decent pockets and he was trying to run out the back a couple times last night. I'm not sure if that came back to him getting smacked up a little bit earlier, but I, I think that's something uh, any quarterback with, with wheels kind of has to mitigate a lot of the muddled up pockets that Watson has dealt with because uh, he kind of brought to my everyone's attention really that he's had some pretty good protection over the years and he's really got a, you know, just manage crisis a little bit better within the pockets so he's not running out of um, places he doesn't need to go and not running, you know, headfirst into a brick wall or anything like that. Um, I don't think you see him throw the ball away a ton. I think that he could probably uh, learn to protect himself a little bit better there and kind of live to fight another day. Yeah, for sure. And um, so 
I guess overall, if you if you were the Browns, just in terms of a quarterback, is he he seems like between him and Trubisky and, and Kaiser and you know whether Mahomes or Allen or even in that conversation, um, I would I, I doubt that they would be. But um, is is Deshaun the guy that that you think out of those out of those three is the is the clear cut guy you'd want them to take? See, it's funny because uh, Kaiser's definitely been out of sight, out of mind, uh, just as bad as Notre Dame was this year no bowl game or anything like that um for a while i was definitely 60 40 on watson kaiser who i would take at one uh and i think that kaiser's gonna do really well in the uh pre-draft whole thing i think he's gonna measure out of the world out of this world i think he's gonna test athletically in in a cam range really and maybe even faster um and from everything i've heard great guy good leader just everything that could have happened that went wrong at notre dame starting the first game against texas uh pretty much went wrong so i think he's got a little bit more kinks to work out as far as mechanics and kind of getting in between his ears and figuring out you know was this him this year or was the year before that him and how do you find kind of like a happy medium in between but i would say that watson is I think he has the path, the easiest path to the number one pick, and I think that you can feel the best about him being a safe choice that he's going to be able to lead your franchise for, you know, a couple contracts here. Yeah, for sure. And admittedly, Kaiser is probably the guy I've watched the least of. I've I've watched a few um, a few games of his, but I I don't really feel like I have a good feel on Kaiser. But you know, yeah, the stuff I've I've kept hearing is what what you touched on is that he's probably going to test off the charts at the combine. And as often as people say, oh, we're not going to let the combine sway our opinion on a guy, it it happens every year regardless because you know if he if he's going to run like a a four or five and or he's going to you know bench whatever or just test out of, out of this world, he you know he's going to jump up. It's going to happen and. Um, so I I agree with you in that I think his I think he I think he and Deshaun are going to be in the conversation for the first guy taken overall. But um, I guess that leads us nicely into Trubisky, where I feel like we we maybe differ a little bit on on Mitch. And um, there was some somebody on my timeline. I don't know how I got in there. Oh, it was Roddy White who called him Blaine Gabbert, <laughs> and it really that really hurt me deep down because. Um, I, I sat in the stands for two years of Blaine Gabbert and, um, he was, he was really not good. He, you know, what's funny, just a quick aside about Blaine though, is because, you know, he came in, um, a year, you know, in the year after when Chase Daniel left and Chase Daniel had taken Missouri to, to heights that they hadn't seen in quite some time. They were, when I was a freshman, they were one game away from the national championship, but they lost to Oklahoma in the, in the big 12 championship. Um, and then, uh, so they didn't have a shot, but, but Chase was putting up unreal numbers in the spread offense that they had him in. And then Blaine was, was infinitely more hyped than, um, hyped up than, uh, Chase was, you know, he's like this prototypical big arm, big guy, these flowing blonde locks and everybody was obsessed with him. And I just kept watching him and me and my buddies would watch him. We were like, I just don't get it. Like he just, he would overthrow guys all the time. He used to throw over wide receivers heads, like just every multiple times, every single game he had happy feet. He would never stay in the pocket. And 
he was terrible. And I remember when the when the Jaguars took him initially, I'd be like, they could have just called me, and I could have been like, he's not good. I don't know what you guys are doing. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, I, I that, take a that, I, definitely. I think Mayock was Mayock and uh, Gabber. Those are the first time I ever really got exposed to big draft like that. Yeah, uh, a guy flying up their boards and just really not having any idea why <laughs> uh we kind of called them tatas back in basketball you know tall and that's all <laughs> and you really didn't see anything from the games or from even just watching him throw you it just everything was high and away and you could just tell this guy was going to be a walking turnover and unfortunately the jags are the only team that we can really make fun of as the Browns being like well of course the Jags were going to take him and it was going to end horribly (laughs) yeah it was so you know I I had to tell Roddy to chill because it's like don't put don't put my guy Mitch in that same sentence. I, I think Mitch is a, a much better prospect than Blaine Gabbard ever was. But um, I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on on uh, on how you feel about Mitch and what you may like and kind of dislike about him. Yeah, I think he's he's definitely going to be somebody even you know on a national scale beyond you know Brown's Twitter or whatever. That's going to be very uh, divisive. I think the you have the 13 starts, and then you have the mature way he plays on the field. I, The way I always um, – I talk to Justin Higdon, AFC to NFC. I don't know if you follow him. Yes, but, uh, I, yeah, I do. Uh, he's somebody I talk to a lot, uh, somebody who's kind of taken me under his wing almost <laughs> as far as uh, the draft community goes. And we talk a lot about him and just he does everything – you know, above average, but nothing to me, in my opinion, sets him apart for that upper echelon type of uh, player. He's already a little bit mature. He, you know, he's older. He, if, if he went back, he would end up being like 25 his rookie year. Um, so you're going to have that that give and take there. He's got 13 starts, but he looks, you know, really capable right out of the shoot. Like you could plug him in and, you know, not worry about him completely you know screwing everything up i always compared him to like a souped up andy dalton that that's kind of how i see him athletically i think he's thicker than dalton he's a little bit taller i think too um but he's a guy who's not gonna tank your franchise i definitely think he's gonna go in the top 10 uh chicago for some reason really sticks out to me and i think they're probably a big uh jimmy g guy too uh something about them and them not wanting to uh really swing for the fences that's just kind of what i get from fox and their whole operation up there uh that they're gonna want to be safe about the whole thing which i think is you know not a bad thing to say about trubisky you see his interception numbers you know he threw six picks in five games combined or something like that four four or five games combined so he does a good job of protecting the ball. Uh, he spreads the ball around a lot, too. I know that we've talked about um, his skill position players, and you know they're a little bit underrated. I think that he has a really good complement of weapons, and I think that even more so draws back to the Dalton comparison where if you give Dalton uh, A.J. Green, if you give him an Eifert uh, before he lost Sanu and uh, Marvin Jones, you know, he can – 
he can put up 25 touchdowns and, you know, stay away from the turnovers. I know Dalton had a lot of picks early on, but uh, he's kind of, you know, performed a little bit better in that regard with uh, a lot of the weapons that he has. So I think they kind of project similarly in that way, and I'm not sure that that's where I would go for a team as far as the Browns. Yeah, I, I, I for sure hear what you're saying, and I think I've kind of even changed stances on um, on Mitch in terms of I don't yeah I don't know if he's he's the right guy for the Browns either, and I think I'd probably rather them take Watson Watson than Trubisky. I think you know I think I've been scarred by so many Browns court like I I fell in love kind of with Trubisky's accuracy and how yeah it seems like I think we talked on this early on, but how most of his incompletions just just were incompletions. It seemed like he was able to really avoid the bad interceptions and, and the bad turnovers where, you know, a lot of times he's he's putting the ball where either he, his receiver is going to get it or it's just going to fall incomplete, which I liked. And I think part of that is because I'm so, I'm so scarred. I always think back to... Um, you know, to Derek Anderson, this guy with this huge arm who who couldn't, you know, throw a swing pass. He'd he'd throw it 100 miles per hour. He'd throw it into the ground. And about how important yeah. how important accuracy is, and um, how overrated a big arm can be. And so I think I've certainly been scarred by Browns quarterbacks not being accurate. And um, so that was something that really stood out with me with Mitch. And I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, another thing I noticed too about him. We kind of touched on this with Deshaun. Um, and, and Trubisky is not as good of a runner as Deshaun in, in any way, shape, or form. He kind of picks his spots, but, you know, he has the ability um, in the pocket, uh, you know, to he moves his feet really well, and he can, um, he can escape when he needs to, and he's big enough where he can take some hits and, and quick enough where he can get you a first down if you need be, and his footwork has always really impressed me. Now, I think we've, we've also talked about how um, sometimes he can, he can be lazy with his mechanics in, in the pocket, and that is... Um, kind of affected some of his throws and maybe his he's a little too inconsistent but when he when he's right and when he's climbing the pocket and and moving his feet and getting out of the way of pressure it can be there's some moments where you watch him and you watch a play like that and it really impresses you as in terms of how yeah how ready he is and how good he is at that and just like you said in just 13 starts so those were a couple things that most certainly stood out to me about about him yeah he definitely looks like he's been drilled it, like, uh, not to compare him to Peyton Manning or anything like that, but the way he keeps his feet chopping, uh, it looks like he's gone through a lot of those same types of drills where he's very conscious of what his feet are doing. And <laughs> some people even uh, go the opposite way with it, and they think he makes you know a ton of demonstrative moves within the pocket. And like just because his head's swinging around and firing around, doesn't mean that he's making a lot of complicated reads right and you know i'd be on the middle ground there as far as i think he definitely goes through his progressions but he's always got his speed chopping and buzzing uh but like you said he tends to fall off his uh his spot a little bit when he's going left uh his plant foot will open up a little bit too much and that's kind of what allows his then shoulder to drop a little bit and then his elbow drops and he kind of sails a few passes i think in the what game was that was on during the day it was not the bowl game but it was against uh nc state okay um when they were coming back and they were trying to win it at the end there uh a couple of those passes to the left he did that you know his plant foot his toe wasn't facing towards his target it was kind of facing towards the sideline and he ended up letting a couple of them sail on him. 
so those are things that you know he's definitely gonna have to work on but like you said 13 starts he's gonna have uh you know plenty of time to correct these mistakes uh which you know i don't think is a fatal flaw by any means i think he does a good job of working the sidelines i think uh he has a way strong enough arm. You see him making consistent throws from the opposite hash to the sideline. Um, and I think he's got, you know, like we were saying, he's got what you need if you need a quarterback and maybe not the face to put the whole franchise on your back at this point. Right. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, some scenarios of that have popped out is, you know, I'm so intri- I'm very intrigued by Tyrod Taylor and whether, you know, although people have been saying that, um, you know, with that Anthony Lynn, if he becomes their, their head coach that, um, you know, he's, he's super, he's a big defender of Tyrod and likes Tyrod a lot. So who knows if he's going to be available or if he's going to decide and sign back with the bills, but a scenario where, you know, the Browns sign Tyrod and, and, and then draft to Brisky and let him kind of sit behind him. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the right plan. I don't know if that's something that uh, I would want them to do, but I could certainly see that just that scenario in, in theory being something that um, would be really good for, for Mitch to at least, maybe he's not sitting the entire season, but at least sit a season and kind of, yeah, develop himself and, and do that as a quick aside. I don't, you know, what are you, are you a Tyrod guy? Do you like him? I feel like I have watched more, more of them this year than I than I usually have and um, I think his play was a little bit underrated this season I think he didn't have a ton to work with and, and made the most of um, his time in Buffalo but I, I'd be curious as to what you think of Tyrod and if you you would be a guy if he became a free agent that you know would would advocate the Browns taking a flyer on him yeah I think he's definitely going to be the number one guy on the market um, if Cousins stays in dc like i i kind of figure they're they're kind of married to each other at this point i think that's a real big catch 22 you kind of damned if you do damned if you don't but i think uh i'm a big fan of tyrod i think that you can build an offense around his strengths i think that um his deep ball his ability to scramble his ability to get first downs um and to keep his eyes down the field when he's scrambling too, I think that's uh, a big plus with his. The problem is, is that you're not going to be able to have a lot of stuff over the middle. Um, he can't see over the middle that well. Uh, he can't really see what he's throwing to. So if you look at a uh, completion chart of his, it it's pretty um, startling just how much uh, he stays away from the middle and how much they work the sidelines you might end up having a problem kind of like uh, Philly had where they re-signed Sam Bradford and then traded up to the number two pick without telling him that's what they were planning on doing. And you end up having a starting quarterback with the face of the franchise sitting behind him. And I don't know that that is a super comfortable place for you know a free agent quarterback to try and uh, break into. I'm not sure that he would find that situation uh really appealing uh but then again i don't really know what they're gonna do in the draft and i don't even know that they would tell tyrod anything more than you know anything could happen so i i would i would hope they would have an idea of what they would want to do if they were going to go and get your tyrod your garoppolo your god forbid mike glennon type of quarterback (laughs) where they're looking for a starting opportunity immediately 
Yeah, yeah. The Mike, I, I had forgotten about Mike Lennon until I had a uh, one of the um, sports radio stations on here in the after early afternoon and uh, heard somebody bring up Mike Lennon. Um, I feel like Mike Lennon is just a name for a backup quarterback that you know, like the the, the every year the one backup quarterback that teams may or may not be interested. You could just be like, oh yeah, he's probably named Mike Lennon. Like he's just the embodiment of that of that guy. I saw Brian Hoyer beat Mike Lennon live, so <laughs> <laughs> that immediately takes him off any sort of list that you could have. Oh, man. Well, I'm also impressed that we um, we got through this whole podcast without throwing any, any shade at, at Carson Wentz. I know you've, uh, you've sworn off attempting to talk about him on, on Twitter, but I know deep, I know deep down you've got, that, you've got that shade brewing in your heart, so now's your time if you, if you want to say anything about Carson to just – you know, get it off your chest. This is a safe space. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I obviously haven't been doing pretty good uh, <laughs> keeping him out of my uh, tweets. Certainly, uh, you know, it, it's at this point, it's it's in the, the eye of the beholder. You know, if you were mad at the Browns passing on him in Week Four, you're probably still mad about them passing on him today. If you didn't understand what any of the hype was and saw a guy who threw 14 picks and fumbled 14 times this year, you probably think the same sort of thing. I, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle, uh, like most things. I think if they get um, some better weapons, uh, you know, he's going to be able to run that same offense and probably have better yak opportunities and uh, more deep threats. And that, Even though I'm not sure that that's really his game, I think it was pretty funny uh, – you saw once he started to struggle after the Cincinnati game, there were people calling for the uh, Peterson's head. And I'm thinking to myself, like, the only reason he's done this well so far is because of the offense that Peterson's put around him right. and allowed him to have this one-step, three-step drop offense where, you know, he's getting the ball out of his hands quickly and they're not asking him to do a ton of post-snap processing and fitting into tight windows or you know putting the game on his back i think that you know when all is said and done he's going to be on the outskirts of the top 15 as far as quarterbacks go and i'm i'm just not sure he's going to be able to stop turning the ball over quite like he did this year um because you know you either have that mentality or you don't uh a lot of the interceptions and a lot of the dropped interceptions that I watched throughout the year and even in that last Giants game, uh, I think it was uh, on Monday Night Football, he gets behind the line of scrimmage and, you know, he's running around out there taking forever in the pocket and he ends up throwing these deep passes and, you know, linebackers and safeties are buzzing in on him and they're dropping him either in their stomach or, you know, they're making the pick like Collins did at one point. So I think that those are some kind of things that are ingrained in him, and I think Peterson does a good job of keeping him on script and keeping him on schedule. And the more they do that and the more you know, good yak uh, kind of guys they get around him, the better. Uh, I think you could see a really big drop-off. Uh, Low-key, not even thinking about it, uh, Sproles not being on the team next year possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just something to definitely watch 
going forward. I know my disdain on uh, Twitter comes through pretty strong sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I you know I I feel like I'm very much his Twitter account didn't help though. <laughs> no, no, he set himself up for it by some of the some of the things that he tweets and uh, also says. And I think the one thing that bothered me that really got to me the most was. Like, he could end up being a fine, serviceable, serviceable quarterback. And like you said, like, he's he could honestly be fine his whole career if all he has to do is, you know, yeah, take a quick three-step drop. And if he gets better receivers around him or maybe, you know, yeah, better people around him, he he doesn't need to be this guy that's going to be bombing it down the field all the time. He can hit these these quick slants and these quick out routes and, and move down the field. And if, you know, if the Eagles defense improves in, in the years to come and all that, like he could, he could be fine. My, my thing is that I just can't stand how he just somehow became this consensus franchise quarterback after those three games. And then that just like never really went away, especially here. It's hard for me to not get frustrated when, you're listening to to people talk on the radio about well they've they've you know you can say what you want about Carson Wentz but they the Eagles have found their quarterback and it's like I I don't know it's crazy to me to hear people say that because like yes he's gonna start for them probably for at least the next couple of years but I mean if he doesn't really improve from this year to the next to the next by that much like he's not gonna be there I mean quarterbacks don't get that many years to to um develop at a certain point where they get to where like oh maybe he just is going to be this very average quarterback so that always is frustrating me is how even now even at the end of the season when he really struggled for most of the season like this consensus idea especially here that he's this franchise quarterback when I know that if he was on the Browns and he had that same that just even the exact same season like same numbers and everything people I don't think people would be happy I don't think we'd be sitting here like yeah, I'm really excited about Carson Wentz. He's the quarterback the Browns have been looking for all this time. Like, I just don't think it would be that way, and I feel like it's very hypocritical of, of people to call him a franchise quarterback when, if he was here and we were looking at those same numbers, we'd probably be trying to run him out of town. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny because you, you have the people within the Cleveland media who are – they make their – their dollar i mean the way that they get uh exposure the way that they get clicks all this stuff is to be you know the heel the anti-browns kind of people and any decision they make they're you know automatically going to be ringing that bell but then you have it on a national scale where uh ryan and cbus and i have met a few times and we talk about this kind of stuff uh the eagles media is well represented on ESPN uh, between Daniel Jeremiah, between Sal Palantonio, Ron Jaworski. I mean, Ron Jaworski legitimately called him Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers mix. I was I, mean, I was just about to say that because I remember <laughs> looking up that interview and that what that was after what game three was that after his third game? I swear it was after a couple bad ones. I oh, mean, okay. They they were anointing this guy in a way that I had never seen in my entire life, and and it was funny in a really really you know annoying way to somebody that you know has been looking for their quarterback for 15 years now, and and to see a guy you know come up on the scene have you know three good games and then you know a couple decent ones sprinkled in between a bunch of really bad ones automatically become you know the next franchise guy i think it was after 
week seven, Pro Football Focus has him as he was the worst quarterback in the league. Yep. <laughs> After week seven. So I, I think it, you know, it's again in the middle somewhere. He's not the worst quarterback in the league. I also don't think that he's going to be, you know, carrying teams to the Super Bowl on his back or anything like that. Um, but just where the Browns were last year, I could not imagine them taking an FCS quarterback at number two overall and turning down six picks from the Eagles to come up and get him just where they were and in that position. I think whoever we take at 12 this year, you're going to, you're going to look back and be like, man, we got all of this for that. And our quarterback, you know, where you can look at both of those guys next to each other and compare them one-on-one, but then you have all those other picks and opportunities that you had uh, besides that. I think that it was an obvious, obvious move to make with the structure of the team and the plan that they had going into this year. And, you know, if they end up taking Deshaun Watson number one overall, you know, I think you can shake a lot of hands and be happy with that. Yeah, I I feel very much the same way. Like in the context of that trade and having that trade be available, I, I cannot be in any way, shape or form upset that they they took that deal, especially having watched Carson and having watched Goff, in a, albeit a small sample size. But yeah, I I just find it very difficult for me to get worked up about that, especially yeah. Obviously, obviously, this all comes back to them hitting for once in their lives on on a draft, <laughs> and there's oh, yeah. there's so much talent in this draft that I that I just hope that they they just can't screw this up. But it's the Browns, and saying that is like. Um, you know, I, I should know better than to say that, but I guess this kind of leads me to where I want to end it is, um, you know, you had tweeted something, um, recently that I kind of resonated with me because, um, you were talking, (laughs) no, it was, it was just, you were talking about it. I thought it was interesting about how you, you don't want to be seen as like this Brown's apologist, but you know, you, I feel like we're similar in a way that, I hate it's really hard for me to be constantly negative about the Browns, even though a lot of times they deserve it. But because there's so much like hyperbole and so much over negativity from media, from fans, from whatever, um, that I get really tired of it. And I also just don't really it's it's almost like to me, it's like, what's the point? Like I I, my entire life, the Browns have been awful. Like I I know this and um, I've given out my fair share of criticisms to, to past regimes, to past players that I'm almost just exhausted by it. So I really have trouble getting upset about small things that I don't really think matter all that much in the grand scheme of things, such as, you know, today when, you know, you've got Jason Lockenfor railing against the Browns for, you know, firing Ray Horton and then firing these other coaches and bringing in a new defensive coordinator when, you know, they were preaching continuity, which, you know, I get, but it's, it's just not something I'm going to get worked up about because personally, I think what it, when they get talent, like none of this stuff is going to matter. And I hope that that's soon because talent trumps everything. But, um, I also feel like you sometimes where I feel like, oh man, people probably think like I, I never say anything negative about the Browns or that I I'm a quote unquote apologist about it. And I just thought that was really interesting because, um, yeah, it's just hard for me to like get worked up about the things that a lot that people spend a lot of time getting worked up about with the Browns. And, um, I was just kind of curious what you meant when, you know, you tweeted that and and why you kind of felt that way. Yeah, I think it's funny. I've definitely, you know, had that, uh, 
told to me and, and said about me a few times. And I think it's funny that even when you say, hey, this could work out, you, you know, you're some mouthpiece for the team. Um, or even the funny one that came out this uh, last week, apparently being mad at the Browns for firing Horton was part of the Browns apologists. <laughs> so uh, that was funny uh, just because, you know, we bought into that continuity sort of thing. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, continuity within the power structure is still pretty unchanged. Um, you know, they still have Sashi making the final calls on the 53. Hugh reports to Haslam. He's still there. He's still going to run what he wants to run. Barry's still in charge of the player personnel. Uh, and Di Podesta is obviously still there. Um, I, you know, they're going to be railed against, and they're, everyone's going to say they suck until they're not, you know, until they don't suck and they're not bad. Um, and I think uh, getting rid of Horton definitely put a feather in lock and for his hat because he reported that earlier. He also reported that Hugh was, um, you know, bargaining or trying to get a football, you know, we hear that term, the football guy in the front office. Doesn't seem like anything like that is happening at this point. Um, that see like something like that would give me a ton of pause and freak me out and you know be like oh crap you know this is going down the the tubes again but i don't think there's anything wrong with looking at a brand new front office a brand new coaching staff in year one with the roster they had you know i'll, I'll give credit to people who would argue with me at the beginning of last year when i said they weren't tanking uh, you know, that was a lot of semantics between was the front office trying to do everything they could to win every game? You know, maybe not. They were cleaning out house. They were making up for the sins of the past regimes that, you know, couldn't re-sign anybody, uh, drafted horribly, blah, blah, blah. They had to retool and they have to, you know, put talented players back on the football team now. And I think, you know, looking forward, was that season worth whoever they get number one? You'd like to think so. You, you know, how many teams uh, would take, uh, you know, mulligan season in order to get the top pick of the top quarterback of the top player? Um, I think it worked out pretty well for the Lions. Uh, taking Matt Stafford, I think it's going to end up, you know, working out for us with whoever we end up getting. Yeah, I, uh, yeah I'm with you, and I'm the same way in terms of, you know this this quote unquote this mythical football guy that um, you know <laughs> from Lock and Four and from Mary Kay in that article that she wrote a while ago. It's like I, I don't know who this person is that everybody keeps bringing up as like this football guy, but I guess he's I guess he's somebody really great just waiting to come to the office. But um, yeah, that would be that would be bad. That would not be good. That would not be a good look. Uh, both inside the franchise and out. And um, but it doesn't seem like there's any credence to that. And um, I think you know and it. It, this the thing like taking Cody Kessler with that pick, I think, has been um, something that's going to be continue to be somewhat of a head scratcher for for a while. Taking them as high as they did, and so there, there's little things that I think people criticize, but don't really you know get get looked at as the same as well, oh they they went one and fifteen. Why aren't you guys upset and all that stuff? And I just get really tired of like that whole. I get tired of people not being able to see past like just yeah. the surface value of, of that stuff. And, and I think that there's a lot of, 
you know, I know, I know a lot of, of us on Twitter and a lot of people on Twitter like to kind of take jabs at some of the media that cover the team. And I, I, and I think, and I've tried to kind of scale back on that and just try to, um, you know, write about them and, and in my own way more to kind of help the coverage of it just in my, my own way. But I think that it's because of, of exactly that is because there's so many people that write about this team that seem to just take this very simplistic view of things and uh it's frustrating because there's you know it should be better there even though the team's been terrible for forever i feel like there should still be some sort of um better coverage that is uh, educating people more than just people ranting and raving about the browns but that's a that's another long conversation for for, an, <laughs> for another day so um yeah, go on for hours yeah, yeah we could um yeah. It's a pretty good bet to bet against the Browns, and I think people are <laughs> people have more than made their careers doing that. And I don't think it's any sort of heroic leap off the edge. No, no, it is not. But I guess, you know, like you said, until until they're no longer bad, this is just what it's going to be like. And there's not there's not really a, a ton of wiggle room to argue about that. Like I get it, my team sucks, and it sucked for a really long time, and I fully oh, yeah. I fully accept that. And I'm hoping that sometime in the not so not so far future that uh, it'll be different. But um, Luke, I appreciate it, man. This was uh, this was really fun. I appreciate your insights. Um, the draft should be really fun. Maybe we can reconnect uh, as we get closer to the end of April, the beginning of May, because um, I, I've, I haven't been as excited about a draft as, as this one in, in a long time. And um, everybody always jokes that draft day is the most exciting day for a Browns fan. And it's not really a joke. It's kind of right. It's just kind of fun, fun to uh, uh, fun to do this. So, yeah, man, really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll have to link up and uh, do this again. Yeah, you bet. Uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Later. All right. Bye-bye.